Coming up next on Twitch, this week in computer hardware, is it safe to buy an SSD, Samsung Keylogger, oops, budget PC expectations, and next-gen motherboard technology. Coming up next on Twitch. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twitch. Bandwidth for Twitch is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 113, recorded March 31st, 2011. Let's move to Kansas City. This episode of This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you by MailRoute. Businesses of every size use MailRoute. One user, 50,000 users, it doesn't matter. MailRoute will protect you from spam and viruses, simplify your life, and make your email usable again. Visit MailRoute.info for more details. Welcome to Twitch This Week in Computer Hardware. I'm Patrick Norton, joined as always by the man, the myth, the benchmarking legend from, for a change, Las Vegas, Nevada. How's it going, man? Uh, it's going pretty well, enjoying the 80-something degree weather for once. Uh, it's apparently 29 degrees and it was snowing earlier today at home, so I'm enjoying the time and the heat. Although, I'm a little disappointed. I didn't bring a very heavy coat with me, so the return could be a little little less than uh, appealing, I guess. You mentioned before the show that your wife wasn't actually traveling with you. She's back in Ohio in the 29 degree mm -hmm. weather. I think it's wonderful that your relation is sound enough that you assume you'll actually be allowed back in Ohio, coat or not. After well, if, 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 <laughs> if the door locks have changed, you know, there's lots of hotels around and that kind of stuff. So, you know, you and hey, I could always, I could always go back. Right, I can always go back to the warm weather. You so. can sleep amidst the monitors. Monitors <laughs> keep a bench, the test room warm. Should we I do have the ups. not a huge, not a huge week in hardware. Big week for Kansas City. Not really, uh, Kansas City's getting Google's fiber program. Uh, it's a good time to move there. Uh, yeah, uh, well, late 2011 will almost mm. be a good time to move there. First quarter 2012. Uh, if you haven't been following this. Google made a call out last year for Siri. Basically, they want to do an experiment. They want to lay, you know, they want to do micro trenching and fancy new. Basically, they want to do fiber to the curb to every house in a city between 50,000 and 500,000 people. And they were supposed to announce it like back in November, December. They hired the man who's running the program. They had to delay it because they had like 1,100 entries. And just this week, Kansas City, Kansas is announced as they are getting Google's fiber. Uh, Google says it will be competitively priced. It'll be a gigabit speed for everyone, which makes me excited on levels that I can't really explain, but not nearly as excited as the idea of Comcast and AT&T having a big, giant, well-funded, free economy competitor that's going to cause everybody to drive, uh, hopefully either drives quality of service up or, or, or drive the caps away or just is, have it. I want an alternative for everyone. Is, is this, is that the main goal of this kind of initiative, right? So the first thing I think of is what makes Kansas city so great. Um, why don't they bring it to Cincinnati, Ohio? It's more of a jealousy factor. <laughs> I was going to say, well, first of all, and, and I'm going to get slapped by my uncle for saying this, but I'm going to say Kansas city has the edge in barbecue. No disrespect. Well, that's fine. That's fine. No I, I got no problem with that. Um, but I just want the edge and broadband speed. And <laughs> <laughs> my local internet, cable internet, um, 50 megs down, 5 megs up is the top speed you can get. That's, that's, that's pretty good, and it's better than most people have access to. It's $100 a month, mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit pricey. But again, I think kind of in range with the people are having here. Now, you know, I think they were initially going to do multiple cities. Is this just something over time, and this just happens to be the first major one they're going to do? This is, they did a 800, I want to say they did like 850 homes in Palo Alto, which is very close to Google headquarters, and obviously right next to the Stanford campus where Google mm -hmm. uh, was born for all intents and purposes. And uh, uh, Kansas City is the big trial rollout. And, and the, the, the suggestion is that, yes, they want to roll it out in more cities. And... You know, I think they're basically, Google's got a lot of money in the war chest, you know. They've, sure. They, they've, they've got a, you know, okay, hey, we've invented cars that drive themselves in some of the worst traffic in North America. Why not wire up a city, you know, and right. let's see what happens next. Because, I mean, Google, when you think about it, right, the, 
part of the reason when people talk about, you know, the whole like the free market will take care of itself where it's very unusual because at the same time, all the baby bells are being or the ma bell was being broken up into the baby bells. Cable companies were buying up more cable companies and wiring up private networks, mm. um, you know, and that's where all, you know, the, it's, it's funny because like DSL uses phone lines, which were installed under protective monopoly and the court fights go through and then you can actually have DSL provided by somebody other than your, your regional carrier, right? Right. Um, the same battle went to the Supreme Court because people wanted access to deliver competitive uh, cable uh, like internet over the cable lines and the cable companies basically are like, we're private companies. We didn't have a protected monopoly. Y'all can't have it. And the Supreme court said, yeah, that's perfectly reasonable. So the idea that somebody's going to wire every house and you know, it's everybody's like, well, Fios. And I'm like, Fios is in like eight households. No disrespect. You know, Fios, everybody who has Fios thinks it is the most amazing thing ever. I desperately want Fios. It might be. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it, takes an incredible amount of money to lay cable or I should say lay fiber in the traditional right. way. So Google's big experiment they're doing what other companies have done, which is figuring out the least painful and least expensive way to lay a whole lot of fiber to a whole lot of houses really fast. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing that Kansas city had going for it was that they had a huge response from the community along with the government. And it wasn't just like, we'll change the name of Kansas city to Google Kansas. It was, you know, people making really serious responses and, and having a large turnout from the community. Right. It's interesting. Cause it, it, my dad, I just bought him a high definition TV for the first time this past Christmas. So he's mm -hmm. seeing things like HDTV for the first time really has fallen in love with it. Now he's, he's already the guy that if it's not on an HD, he's just going to change the channel. Um, and so when I talk to him about, you know, we talk about broadband speeds, internet speeds, what can enabling a gigabit ethernet connection for a community, for a city actually do? Um, you know, you, you try to like, you know, while we're driving around here in Las Vegas going to golf courses and through my single cell phone, we're doing GPS right. and, uh, you know, I'm using this mobile broadband to make show notes for today's show. And, uh, you know, I'm getting text messages on it and stuff like that. That's really impressive. And it's all, all enabled by bandwidth and processing horsepower. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen in this show, processing horsepower, GPU horsepower, this type of stuff is, has trucked on over the years. It's incredibly efficient. It's incredibly powerful. Broadband speeds, while, have, while we have been increasing, we're talking, you know, less than an order of magnitude if we look at the whole country that it has changed versus the, how many orders of magnitude performance has changed in the same period of time. Right. Um, and if you really want to, you know, we start looking at, well, is this laptop good enough? Is this computer good enough for all, all the, the things I want to do? Enabling gigabit ethernet speeds uh, and enabling what Google's calling these gigabit Ethernet applications, what they'll be able mm -hmm. to do, what new people will be able to create, is going to is kind of required in order to think of new ways to use this type of of, of processing power in your laptop or in your desktop. It's it's pretty interesting. And also, I saw on this blog post here uh, that Google posted that they heard from some communities that they were disappointed not to have been selected in our, in our initial build, and they're saying that this is the beginning of the project at the end of the project over the coming months they'll be talking about uh more uh cities that are interested in that so maybe your city maybe my city hopefully some city <laughs> near us yeah so. i mean you know it, it's a it's a it's a huge experiment it's probably could, could potentially cost hundreds of millions of dollars for google google's mm -hmm. making money hand over fist so that i don't think it's as big an issue for them but i, I I'm, I'm right along with you i want to see what happens if you have an entire community with giant amounts of of you know bandwidth i would tend to say that one is not enough bandwidth. yeah i mean one community is not enough is alameda would be a fine but. fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah you want cincinnati i want alameda what town would you like oh Petaluma yeah is fine yeah petaluma is fine <laughs> the list yeah by the by the time kansas city gets up and running and people start talking about the bandwidth there'll be like fifty thousand cities in north america that want this right right so we should probably talk about uh, Intel's 320 series, the new uh, SSDs. Yeah, uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, maybe as much as a month ago, Intel released the 510 series of SSD. And this was the first uh, kind of major change from the X25M lineup of SSDs. We had the X25M and the X25M G2, which uh, basically increased read speed and write speed a little bit uh, on both sides. The 510 series introduced a SATA 6 
5G controller capability, you know, read speeds up to 510 megabytes, write speeds up to, I don't know, 350, 400 megabytes, something like that. But it wasn't using an Intel controller, if you remember. We thought that was kind of weird. It was actually using a Marvell branded and developed controller. So this time around, we're reverting back to the SATA 3.0 gigabit per second bus. These are not SATA 6G mm-hmm. SSDs, but they are using the same or they're using a newer, faster Intel controller in them. Um, with that, we are getting improved uh, sustained sequential reads and writes as well as improved random uh, reads and writes. And actually, Intel is saying that across the board, compared to the X25M, the 320 series of SSDs sees performance boosts at every single statistic wow. and drops the price by, I think, $100 at the 160 gig iteration. Um, you know, read speeds are at 270 megabytes per second, basically from the 80 gig model up to the brand new uh, available, will be available, the 600 gig model. That's always nice. And then write speeds actually improve as the capacity of the drive improves all the way up to, you know, 200 megabytes per second at the 300 gigabyte model, 220 megabytes per second at the 600 gig model. Now, those are less than you're going to you know, you're, you're basically kind of maxing out the SATA 3.0 gigabit per second bus there with those, with those types of speeds. Um, and, you know, there, was, there were some questions on why would Intel decide to do that. I, I think likely it is that their controller technology just wasn't up to the task of being ready for the SATA 6G mm-hmm. bus. Hence why would they, they would use that Marvell controller. Um, <clears throat> their answer is basically that, hey, look, you know, 80% of the market, 90% of the market is still limited to SATA 3.0 gigabit per second connections anyway. Why spend extra money, extra development time, um, improving in an area that most users won't actually see an advantage of in terms of that performance? Um, and so there's some, there's some merit to that. And I think um, for the most part, I would go under the, the guise of saying that 3.0 gigabit per second speeds are just fine for consumers today. Right. What is most important with SSDs is that latency, is that response time. You know, you're getting the 0.1, 0.2 millisecond response time, as opposed to needing to get more than 200 megabytes per second of reads or writes. There aren't a lot of instances where that's going to happen. I mean, can you think of anything that you do <laughs> on a semi-normal basis that, that requires 200 to 250 megs of read or write bandwidth? No, not unless I start running a, you know, a massive server system out of my home and I'm pretty sure streaming HD video to three devices in the house isn't going to do it. No, uh, no, probably not. Uh, I mean, if you do like hardcore video editing, you're doing like raw video, 1080p, super high bit rate, you know, the the higher read speeds are going to be great, but I still think 270 is going to be more than enough for that. Um... Prices on this are going to be pretty good too. We're talking um, less than a hundred, or less than a hundred, less than a dollar eighty per gigabyte. So you could be able to get the 160 gig model of this drive for 289 dollars, uh, which is a really reasonable price. I think the sweet spot for for you know the kind of the enthusiast people, the guys who are listening to this show, is going to be a 300 gig model that's 529 dollars. And I'm guessing by the time we kind of see stock settle in and that kind of stuff, we'll see this right at about the 500 dollar mark uh, for 300 gigs, which is pretty good. And if you really want to, you can get that 600 gig model for about a thousand dollars. It's pretty it. impressive. I want it, but then I won't be allowed back in Alameda. <laughs> <laughs> Just like I won't be allowed back in Florence. So, but I mean, it's it's an interesting kind of it's an evolutionary step, and I mm-hmm. and I kind of understand now why Intel released the five ten series first. Right. They released it. It's I don't know if it's even actually been for sale yet, but they've definitely released it. Um, with the reviews and all that, it was because they wanted to say, hey, look, we've got a SATA six G solution uh, for those people that that are excited about that. I think. What we probably need to do on this show is kind of, I think, educate people to the fact that most of the time that's not that's not what's going to be most important. Right. That raw sequential read write because that's only statistic <laughs> and performance statistic you're going to see that's that's really really different um, between these two drives. So well, I mean, here's another thought or here or another thing to throw out. Sorry, there's a there's this really fantastic footrest down here, but I feel like every time I step on it, can anybody? 
in the chat room nope. hear this giant creaking when I step on it. Sorry. I just want to make sure there wasn't a giant howling creak every time I uh, uh, shifted <laughs> over here. Uh, I feel very ergonometric, just squeaky. Um, the point I was going to say is, is we should probably discuss whether or not we expect another round of consumer SSDs, another big round of consumer uh, SSDs to show up between now and Christmas. Um, it's not a bad time. It's uh, to uh, it's not a bad time to be looking at SSD drives right now. Most of the majors have released the OCC. The Vertex Three is out. The Vertex Two prices are down. Um, right. Intel's out swinging with some of their new products. Um, I'm, you know, I, 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 I. It may be the heat here in Petaluma because I'm still not used to temperatures above <laughs> 65 after 12 years in San Francisco, but. You know, it's it's it sounds like I, I, I feel like there's gonna be at least one more major evolution in the drives before Christmas. No? I'm not I Maybe? mean Intel has kind of alluded to the fact that there are going to be other drives coming out mm -hmm. for our markets pretty soon. I don't think I don't think we're gonna have any real dramatic changes in things because if you look at it we're we're maxing out the SATA three point gigabit per second right. bus. Um we are able to put speeds of SATA 6G out there if we need to, if people need them. Those controllers exist. They're not great. Those can be improved upon, and that might happen before the end of the year. But, you know, the only, the only other real important statistic is IOs per second and, and difference, uh, differences and in, in all that kind of thing. I think the most dramatic change we'll see will be in uh, complete systems, notebooks and desktops, where they figure out new, unique, better ways to combine SSDs of smaller capacity, like 160 gig or 300 gig, with larger capacity drives, like one and two terabyte and above physical disks. Think of the hybrid hard drives, but uh, those th things that actually work well and people like. Um, so it's safe to tell everybody out in the Twitch audience that if you have been pining for an SSD, if you've been saving your pennies Go ahead and buy an SSD and experience I, 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 the revolution. I can, you know, we can never be 100% confident, but it's, this is one of those times where I think pr it's, we're pretty safe at this point. Um, you know, it's always possible that some NAND flash thing is going to change and prices will drop, but I don't think performance-wise we'll see anything, and I don't expect big performance drops any, anytime soon. It's it, <clears throat> like anything sudden. It's, it's always been slow progressive drops uh, in this space. It's not like the GPU market where all of a sudden a new drive comes out and everything just falls off a cliff in the previous <laughs> generation. So, yeah. I, I, I would say not a bad time to do that. Go forth and shop. Right, right. Uh, don't tell Alan. Uh, Alvin, Alan Malventano does the SSD reviews. We actually have uh, uh, Anand coming on uh, Techzilla in a couple weeks to talk about uh, some of the SSD benchmarks. Next, I swear I'm going to get Alan on. It will get his. I'll get that email. You better. It'll hurt his feelings otherwise. He built something really cool at work that I want him to talk about, but we need to figure out how he can talk about it without getting. Yeah, I don't know how much he'll so, be able to. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he can't talk about what it's used for, but I think he can talk about the hardware. Anyhow. We should uh, do one more thing before we take an ad break. Uh, if you've been reading about Samsung being evil, evil Samsung has been putting key loggers on their notebooks. Uh, no, actually, it turns out it's a bit of an oops. Um, um, <laughs> a company called GFI makes uh, some high-end security software, and it turns out uh, Alex Eckleberry first read news reports on Wednesday. I'm quoting Computer World right now. Uh, that some of Samsung's R-series laptops contained key-logging software. He was as astounded as everybody else. He thought it was a great uh, story. Eckleberry's the general manager of GFI Security. Um, you know, this, this uh, you may remember the Sony BMG rootkit problem back in yes. 2005, which turned into a giant opportunity for Sony to pay a lot of people a bunch of money. Uh, it turns out the so-called keylogger was a false positive in the, the security parlance. That means we made an oops. A false positive is when your security software tells you something benign is evil and trying to eat your face. Um, Eckleberry said in an interview today, computerworld.com says, we've just fell on our sword on this. It's mud on our face. So, And Samsung did a big PR announcement that basically said, this is a ridiculous claim. Actually, it's really understated even for a Korean technology uh, company. The statements that Samsung installs Keylogger on R525 and R540 laptop computers are false. 
Our findings indicate that the person mentioned in the article used a security program called Viper that mistook a folder created by Microsoft's live application for a keylogging software during a virus scam. The confusion arose because Viper mistook Microsoft's live application multi-language support folder, SL folder, as Starlogger. Mm. Uh, Samsung will continue to respect customer needs by providing the highest quality <laughs> products and services. Which, oddly enough, reminds me of another Samsung product uh, this week. So it's safe to buy Samsung notebooks. Samsung's not spying on you. Um, either that or, or this is like a nefarious level of evil above this. And Samsung <laughs> is so evil that they paid off the security company to take the fall. Uh, I don't think so. I'm being humorous. No, Have you seen I don't the, think so. the transparent Samsung monitors? Wait, say it again? Samsung is releasing... Oh, oh, the the, the yeah. ultra-thin bezel stuff? No, 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 no. It's like transparent, like see-through monitors. I, 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 I totally forgot about this until we started talking about Samsung. Okay. Um, Samsung announced, uh, uh, I guess yesterday, that it was the first company to begin mass production of transparent LCD panels. 22-inch okay. panels, 1680 by 1050, 501 contrast ratio, uh, available in both color and black and white models. So this is starting to sound like an, an aesthetic piece rather than a, a serious work thing. Right. Samsung claims that the panels offer the world's highest transparency rate, over 20% for the black and, black and white variety, 15% for color. Um, can, you, can you tell me what the benefit of this is? In a press release issued today, Samsung touts the panel's endless possibilities in the advertising world, suggesting they could be applied to show windows and outdoor billboards or even used as an interactive communication device for businesses and schools. Uh, yeah, like Samsung Electronics LCD Business Sector Vice President Youngwon Park said, transparent displays will have a wide range of use in all industry areas as an efficient tool for delivering information and communication. Basically, it's, uh, it's a monitor without a backlight, as near as I can tell. Hmm. I thought it was kind of fascinating and strange and wonderful. Um. <laughs> so it's tra it's transparent when it's off, or it's transparent when it allows itself to be transparent. It's kind of like uh... judging from the pictures I've seen, um, you can see like you you sit it in like there was a life hacker thing on how to make a transparent monitor a few weeks ago, and basically right. the transparent monitor was having a, a fairly short lens and doing a picture. Right. from the perspective of where you sit through sure. you know, the monitor. So what this seems to be, um, see-through computer screens that don't require power-sucking bat lights to function. This is in Gadget before I was quoting PC Mag. Uh, no AOM, hmm. uh, there's no LED yet, but ambient light-powered LCDs. So these are LCDs that use... I see. That use... The light around you, whether it's sunshine or, or the fluorescent lights and or, or the LED lights in the studio, um, that's kind of cool. Okay, I, I think it's I think it's safe to say that it's a curiosity, um, and apparently I'm the only person who's really fascinated by this. Moving on, <laughs> perhaps we should thank one of our lovely sponsors who helps bring the show to you every week. We should do that. That <laughs> should do that. This week, uh, we're going to thank our friends at MailRoute. If uh, you haven't heard of their service by now, you definitely need to. Businesses of any size, whether or not you're one user, 50,000 users, it doesn't really matter. MailRoute will protect you from spam and viruses. Simplify your life and make your email usable again. It's a secure hosted service that filters virus and spam for companies of any size. Um, it can eliminate viruses and spam, reduce the load on your email servers, lower your costs, and make your email usable again. The typical MailRoute customers see a 95% reduction in their inbound email volume with virtually no false positives, the term that Patrick just defined for us earlier. <laughs> so with the 95% reduction in inbound email volume, you might imagine you could have uh, quite a few less servers powering that whole uh, that whole mess you might have there. Leo loves using MailRoute as well. He's been using the service for his domains for more than six years and has been his top choice for spam and virus filtering all along. Tom Merritt started using MailRoute and now he can use email domains that he'd given up on as being hopeless. Tom Johnson was the founder of, or he's the founder and CEO of MailRoute, started one of the very first companies in this market back in 98 called FrontBridge, was acquired by Microsoft in 2005, uh, and is still offered today, actually, as a Microsoft Exchange-hosted service. Uh, he, Tom wasn't done, though. He had too many good ideas. He couldn't stand to see go to waste. So he started MailRoute, the next generation of email filtering, with a level of accuracy and price unmatched 
by anybody else. Um, there's nothing easier than filtering with MailRoute. This is the best part. There's no hardware or software to install on your local system. You just sign up with MailRoute and then change the MX records of your domain to point to MailRoute. And then the email immediately starts flowing back to your, to your normal server. So if you know what an MX record is, if you have a, your own website and use your own email, I think this even works with Google, uh, Google Apps if you use Google Apps as well. You can give this a shot. Visit MailRoute.info to sign up. As a Twit listener, you'll receive a 10% discount for the life of your account. Small business accounts start at just $2 per user per month for 10 users. And because of demand from the Twit army, MailRoute has added a new service for individual users as well. Less than $30 per person per year for those single users. Visit MailRoute.info and sign up with the email filtering service that Tom and Leo use. And of course... We thank them for their support of This Week in Computer Hardware. Mm. What do you say we jump into um, a couple of, well, emails? We've got a, no, you're actually building a, a home server project as well, right? Yeah, uh, I got really lucky in a weird way. Robert Heron uh, bought a, an Asus motherboard, a uh, P8H67-M Evo, and uh, basically bought the wrong size. He wanted, I think, the, the, uh, the, mini, <laughs> the mini ITX instead of the micro ATX. Um, right. So rather than take the 15 or 20% hit for returning it, he sold it to me. And so I'm going to be building a, uh, a, uh, a new server for the house, maybe a little sort of a server slash cool. home theater PC. And right. I was laughing because I thought it was a good time to talk about, uh, you know, for you don't need a 600 watt or an 800 watt power supply for a Core i3 or a Core i5 doing server duties. Absolutely and, uh, not. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Seasonic's X-Series uh uh, just got a really, really good uh, review up on Hard OCP. Kingwin's mm -hmm. LZP, they do a 550-watt power supply. Um, you know, the smallest in capacity they've reviewed from Kingwin and advertised as being the most efficient power supply we have seen to date. And uh, it was interesting where they basically said uh, the first power supply that Hard OCP has reviewed that is advertised as being 80-plus platinum certified. And not only was it platinum when it comes to efficiency, it was absolute bank across the board. And it sells for about 170 bucks. The only place I think you can find it is at Newegg. So and I'm trying to figure out, if I do a Core i3, can I get away? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm actually kind of afraid to go to anything smaller than like 450 or 500 watts. Well, we, we <laughs> published a review of the Silverstone SFX 450-watt power supply just this month over at PC Perspective. Lee did our review of that. It sells for about 80 bucks, so it's pretty reasonably priced. Uh, it did get a silver award from us. The only kind of minor gripe he had about it, the units, was uh, that the cables were a little bit short if used in a, in a standard ATX case. But if you're going to use like a mini ATX case or something like that, it won't be an issue at all, I guess. But they reached, but they weren't necessarily, uh, didn't give you extra length. If you had like a one of those Corsair 600Ds or something like that, where the mm -hmm. cables go behind the motherboard and come back out, you might have had a couple of issues there. But it was, I mean, this one was, um, which was this? This was 80 plus bronze, not quite as efficient, not up to the platinum level. Mm -hmm. We're only talking about a few percentage points back and forth with that. 450 watt continuous DC output at 50C, 36 amps wow. available on the 12 volt rail. So more than enough for any kind of home server type project you're doing there. Uh, he'd like, you know, low AC ripple, good efficiency, uh, active power factor control, um, that kind of stuff. So, and a quiet, very quiet, he says too, during normal operations, although we. We always jack up the power on it to make sure we get the, the full <laughs> speed of those fans to make sure what they do. But under normal use cases, you know, and, and for, for a unit that's going to be 80 bucks, that's pretty good. And you said the one that was platinum was like 170? Uh, 160 for the Kingwin. Yeah. I think the I mean, Seasonics, you're, you're, well, the, the Seasonics X-Series 650 is probably way more than I need for a power supply. I mean, I mean go ahead. if you're not using discrete graphics, you know, or anything like that, or even if you're using discrete graphics that, you know, aren't, you know, $250 plus GPU, right. you, I mean, 450 watts is, is a lot more than people think, right? Yes. I mean, people are used to seeing 800, 900,000 watt power supplies now. And I'm just as guilty of this. We use that on our <laughs> test bed, but that's because we have to plan for worst case scenarios when we want to plug in three GTX 580s or something like that. You're actually somebody who does plug in three graphics monitors right. or like three GPUs plus three or four hard drives and right. a gigantic CPU. Um, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I'm, I'm going to see. Uh, I'm going to spec out some parts. We can talk about it some more next week. But I'm, okay. I'm kind of, I'm kind of torn between going super cheap and doing a Core i3 or going with a Core i5 because the, the, 
like idling the core i5 choose like no power i think robert Aaron when we did uh we did a review of a, a puget uh, uh puget systems uh box one of their quiet pcs with a core i5 and it was running something like 22 watts at idle it was consuming yeah. like no power and even at, at full throttle when it was rendering the uh, power consumption was super low so huh, cool. more on that next week indeed Michael's got a question about PCI Express 3.0, DDR4, and the like. Says, what's up, guys? Love the show. I really want to get a new or old Sandy Bridge motherboard, but I hear rumblings of the new X68 and AM3 Plus lines coming out and think I should wait. Then I assume DDR4 is not out till later. SATA 3 is barely implemented, and I also wonder about PCI Express 3.0. How long should I wait? Should I wait until PCI Express 3.0? Will it make any difference with today's cards? Um... It's probably a good time also to mention that Sandy Bridge is finally out on the mobile notebooks. Uh, right. In my enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, the, uh, if it, we, we posted a little preview at PC Perspective that didn't really specify on, in, on any individual uh, product. like any, it, was, it was an MSI notebook I think we used for the performance review. Just a quick overview of what the performance is. It's more of a reminder, refresher, since we kind of tested it back in January. But because it's been you know almost three months uh, and products haven't been on sale since then, we thought it was a good idea to kind of really take a look at that kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't think... This kind of came out of left field because like, I hadn't even heard rumblings of DDR4 mm -hmm. from AMD or Intel at all right. uh, in terms of main system memory. PCI3... PCIe 3, excuse me. I, I've heard a little bit about from the PCI SIG and IDF and that type of stuff. But that's not... I mean, it's so far out of the consumer right. wheelhouse... Um, PCI Express 2.0 is very rarely stretched today, <laughs> right? And, it, and even graphics cards, I mean, think about it this way. A by 16 connection, uh, and we take a by 16 and split it into right. two by 8 connections for two graphics cards when you have SLN Crossfire. Um, so obviously you don't need the full bandwidth of by 16 even for the, the, the highest end modern GPUs today. Uh, so whatever speed benefits PCI Express 3.0 brings, um, Will will not really benefit the consumer, I think, right away or any time in, in the in the near future. To be to be perfectly honest about it, and no, uh, won't make a difference for graphics cards. It really won't. They're they're not doing anything. Um, you know, PCI Express 1.0 is is still okay for most GPU applications. It's just nobody implements PCI Express 1.0 anymore. That's just an old an old technology. So. Uh, you know, AM3 Plus, do you want to wait for that? Maybe if you're going to go with an AMD system, those, are, those motherboards are getting very, 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 very close. Um, and that will support current processors as well as the future bulldozer processors. So I think if, you're, if you want to build an AMD system, that's worth waiting. Mm -hmm. But DDR4, SATA, the 6G, I mean, that's everywhere now. PCIe 3, those aren't even on the, those aren't even on the table yet. Um, if you wait for that, you're never going to build a system. <laughs> Yeah, because they'll be talking about whatever's after that. It's so funny when you look at with PCI Express or PCIe 3.0. It's it, you start you, you you move from like gigabits per second to gigatransfers per second. Um, you know because you're 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 talking about you know backwards compatibility with earlier PCI Express devices. But uh, it's it's just it's it's uh, it's a little kind of crazy to start realizing how much bandwidth. I, I just don't see that showing up anywhere on other than servers. And, you know, right. and, and probably like backplanes for servers, not even like right. in small. It's, it's for servers to talk to other servers type yeah. of thing. Um, I almost feel guilty, though, saying that this is not something to worry about because we just talked about how much bandwidth we need in the mobile, like, or in the internet connection speed. But this is, I mean, it's a totally different animal. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that at all, Michael. <laughs> uh, let's see. We got an email from Jeff about uh, expectations on a system based on the budget system at PC Perspective. He says, uh, I built my current gaming machine in 2004 and have been limping along with it ever since. I didn't know about PCPro.com at the time, so I used some other PC building guide for the budget system. It was hardly top of the line even then, but the goal was to play Half-Life 2, and it did this okay. Now my son has come of age, and we need to get ready for Portal 2, which is a, a good plan there. I have too many kids to build anything but your budget system, but I'd like to get an idea of what I will be able to expect them from it. For example... I would expect Portal 2 to perform much better than my old system did with Half-Life 2. I guess I, what I'd like to know is how good is the budget system? If you go over to PCPro.com slash hardware leaderboard, you'll see what these well, budget just systems leaderboard. are. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Super Dot slash leaderboard resolves to the uh, the hardware leaderboard. <laughs> Does it? Oh, good job! I didn't know how I did that. <laughs> I, I asked you to do that actually. Oh, that's right. Because <laughs> it used to have this really complicated URL. Um, but the budget system, the budget system on the leaderboard, uh, the cost is four hundred and forty-three dollars, and we don't have any specifics from Matt. Excuse me, we don't have any specifics from Matt on what he's got for a CPU and a GPU. No, he doesn't really say what the current setup is. Um, but yeah, you're talking about an Athlon two X sixty four six thirty five, um, which actually you've kind of bumped up to an Athlon X four six forty five. Mm -hmm, uh, gigabyte mm -hmm. GA seven seventy T USB three a Sapphire one thousand two eight seven L which is an HD fifty seven sixty it's an eighty dollar card um, right four gigabytes of RAM which is more than enough for most gaming applications um, that's a really nice spec out there and plus you've got like a at this point you're getting a terabyte hard drives for sixty bucks um, yep and the total system <laughs> the total price of four hundred forty three dollars is is pretty cheap I mean that's mm -hmm. That's, that's that's really, really, really pretty good to be able to build a whole system. You know, we don't count the case in your optical drive and that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, it, I think this is going to have no problems playing Portal 2. Right. Um, it's an HD 5670. It's not the fastest graphics card in the world. I'm going to assume he's running on a 1680 by 1050 monitor or something like that. Um, if that's the case, you know, Portal 1 wasn't hard on systems at all. Portal 2, from what we've seen, doesn't look mm -hmm. particularly different right. than that. Um, and it's definitely going to play it better than any system you built in 2004, especially oh, yeah. if you're saying you built a budget system in 2004. If, if, um, seven years is a long time. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten five years out of a $500 you know, budget gaming PC, you know, but I, I can't, I, I'll get about maybe 18 months into it and something will get upgraded either the hard drive or more memory right. the parts prices generally drop down um yeah if you genuinely have a, a seven-year-old system or even a five-year-old system um the initial boot on this system is going to make you sort of you know you're going to get a you know you're going to have this sort of like oh my god it's so fast right um, because it's you know it, if you wait a couple generations on a chip before you upgrade the comparative speed there you've upgraded processor every year it's like you're lucky if you see like a 20 25 percent difference in most cases lucky and that's if you're spending at the high end and mm -hmm. um you wait five years and and a couple architectures between hardware upgrades you're going to feel really good about the money you spent you're going to be like oh my goodness this is so fast I, I i think you will be shocked and amazed and delighted and and lots of other um excited and happy thoughts with that one Green. So, and then get steam for everyone in the family. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's got a question about home theater PC recording. It says, on the last episode, you guys had a question about whether or not a particular CPU could handle recording more than one show at a time. Uh, in the, uh, whoa, tiltsarchive.org slash archive slash mythcast underscore episode 25 dot og episode of Myth TV cast. The guys interviewed Jeremy Hammer from Seton Corp, makers of the lovely Infinity V4 cable card tuner. The way Jeremy says that the Seton card works is that the computer identifies the incoming streams as files on a network share. All the decoding and transcoding is done on the card, and the only thing the recording computer has to worry about is writing the files to its hard drive. I've been a Myth TV user for about seven years. I love my Lin EH, excuse me, Lin Hess, Lin H E S box and all the powers it gives me. I understand that it's not for everyone, being that it is Linux. It always takes a little more effort to get it to do <laughs> everything. I've I've felt that pain, but the yes. results are fast. Excuse me, fantastic. I uh, just had my braces adjusted earlier today because I broke a brace off. Um, Doing so, it early. Yeah, well, they also tightened everything up, which is kind of like, you know, I, like, walked out of the orthodontist office and, like, pounded a fistful of uh, Advil. Actually, for the younger folks in the audience, I took a responsible and correct dosage of Advil, uh, erring towards the minimum possible dosage to reduce the pain and or swelling and discomfort from my orthodontics. Remember, Ryan and I believe in responsible self-care. Um, and the Lin HES, if you don't know it, is, is what people are calling sort of... Uh, uh, the sort of Linux, gosh, I want to say Linux home entertainment system. I always forget. Sounds that. right to me. Yeah, the Linux home Sounds entertainment right to me. system. Uh, it's, it's interesting. We got, we got several emails kind of on this subject mm -hmm. uh, about our discussion last week um, because I basically the question was, 
will the Fusion processor be a good enough processor to record these incoming streams? I, multiple people say um, that their Atom-based system or, or really low-end system had no problems at all handling the video streams coming in from these these uh, multi-stream cable cards like the Citon cards, mm -hmm. um, which was a little bit surprised to me that that much of the work would be offloaded uh, from the CPU onto the card itself. But we've had multiple reports, and I'm talking you know five or six emails, so five or six people who are listening and actually taking the time to write in seems to be uh, a pretty good percentile there. Um, I, wouldn't so wanna, I, would, I wouldn't want to use it as a home theater PC if I was trying to feed a 10. I wouldn't want to use any of the uh, uh, the lower end processors as a home theater PC. Yeah, I, I agree. I, but. Even though it might be possible to record all that with this, I'm thinking it's probably not... I don't know. It's, I still don't think it is I, it, right. that it's ideal. And if you can get away spending a couple of hundred extra dollars right. to get that better performance. Now you can do playback and recording at the same time and not have to worry about stuff. But if you've got a rig that's already sitting there and you're worried about it, this is, you know, one of my typical responses is if you're, if you're debating, do I build a new system to put the Seton card in or do I put the Seton card in this existing system? <laughs> it's always better. You're going to buy it. What's the, you're going to buy that component anyway, buy it, put it in your rig. See if you like it. If it does, great. You saved a bunch of money. If it doesn't, you're not out of anything but a, but a little bit of time, so now you could build a whole new system around right. it, that type of thing. Um, Definitely got to say thanks but, to Matt for the heads up on that one. And, you know, yeah. it's funny, even on CetonCorp.com, if you go to the requirements for the uh, uh, Infinity V4, they're, mm -hmm. they're basically saying minimum specs of 2 gigahertz or faster CPU, uh, 32 or 64-bit OS, 2.7 gigahertz or faster dual-core CPU is recommended. 3 gigabytes of RAM is recommended. It'll run with 2 gigabytes of RAM, uh, single PCI Express slots. Um, I am fascinated that it, that it happily runs the lower-end processors. Yeah. I wouldn't like to do it myself, you know. I, I agree. <laughs> Minimum, minimums are, to me, minimums are if you've got a brand-new operating system, mm -hmm. maybe like a fresh install, no other applications running, nothing else going on. These are the bare minimum requirements. Um, it doesn't take into account anything else you're going to want to be doing, and, and your multitasking machine here is going to be doing other stuff, mm -hmm. um, more than likely. So, okay. uh, We got an email from Lee about large backups. He says, I'm looking for the most cost-effective solution for backing up my Drobo. I have almost two terabytes of home movies and large pictures. Obviously, a cloud backup solution like Carbonite will not work as his Comcast service has a 250 gigabyte bandwidth cap. So what would you recommend is the safest and cheapest way to back up this data off-site? Um, when I first read this, I, you know, I read that first line, cost-effective way to back up my Drobo, and I was like, well, why, why do you need to back up a Drobo? That's the whole point of a Drobo. And then he mentions the off-site thing. I remember Patrick's favorite thing to do. Yeah, exactly. Patrick's always saying off-site, off-site, off-site. Um, well, it's, it, it's funny. Drobo actually came out with a service and a and a product primarily for small businesses that have more than one offices that will allow the Drobos to synchronize with each other um, hmm. at different locations automatically in the background. Yeah. Um, and it's Veronica and I have been playing around looking for kind of the best. What We're trying to decide what, what is Techzilla's preferred um, online backup solution going to be. You know, Carbonite, you know, they're solid. They're there. They offer discounts. They also sponsor us. Um, there's a couple other ones that look really good. You know, Crash Plan is really tempting. But the problem is, uh, and, and we were talking about this on, on Techzilla a couple weeks ago and and, you know, like Lee brought it up here, is if you've got a 250 gigabyte monthly cap, that mm -hmm. is a total bandwidth cap that includes upload and download. So um, in addition to that is, is most of the, 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 the online backup vendors are going to, after a certain amount of data has gone up to their servers, they will throttle you. So you can kind of be patient right. and slowly upload this stuff in the background. Um, you can do what a friend of mine does, which is take his Drobo into the office and take advantage of the relatively uncapped high-speed internet in his office that may or may not be illegal uh, or unadvisable, depending on what business you're in and what kind of office you work in. Um, you know, one of the things Robert Herrin and I have done where we have, you know, we do disk swap, <laughs> where all the data goes onto the disk and, and gets handed over because, you know, he lives further inland, higher above the sea, and in an apartment building, it's built on stone instead of being built on landfill like the craftsman I live in is. So his house is, is anything that destroys his house probably won't destroy my house. Um, I'm going to knock on Leo's desk now since I've probably just doomed <laughs> both San Leandro and Alameda. Um, hubris. Um, 
but it's huge amounts of data. It's something actually we were talking about on uh, Techzilla this week is we found a way to get around the Comcast cap if you're willing to change the type of service you have. I'm going to make everybody watch Techzilla to find that one out. But um, it's tough because when you start getting up into terabytes of data, you're talking about either taking months to upload it because, mm -hmm. you, know, you know what I mean? Two terabytes of data is four months of your, of your bandwidth cap. Right. <laughs> if you don't do anything else with your internet connection. Now, there are other, like, uh, my, my, my cable service does not have bandwidth caps. Uh, so I didn't have any problems using Carbonite. Now, I backed up not quite terabytes of data. I think, I think right now we have about 450 gigs mm -hmm. worth of stuff backed up. Um, and it did that first, I mean, that first thing took, took many, many weeks. I think we're talking like six weeks or something right. like that because, you know, upload speeds just do that. Um, not all the country has those, and you would hope, I mean, Kansas City, they won't have to worry mm -hmm. about that, right? So, <laughs> well, but yeah, it's, it's... As it's, long as nothing happens to your house or your data between now and 2012 <laughs> when you start turning it on, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, look, the... There are there are issues with with storing data on raw hard drives long term. You know, in theory, the 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 you know, it's a it's it's a charge on the surface of a platter, and if it's not sort of massaged over time, something like an XFS operating system on a FreeNAS box or a Drobo box or any of a number of other high end devices, they kind of what they call polishing your data. Um, you know, if you, if you take a hard drive, take the energy out of it, don't write to it or read from it or correct it, you know, and sit it in a drawer for a number of years, at some point, the, in, in theory, the, the charges are going to dissipate on the surface of the disk. Um, so that's a little paranoid making. Um, you know, Blu-rays yeah. are too expensive for most of us to back up large amounts of data, and it's still only like, you know, 50 gigabytes max, unless you get one of the super high-end specialized ones that are impossible to buy and only seen at NAB and certain CES shows, hmm. um, you know, and cost like 250 bucks a, a pop. Nice. It's, uh, you know, when you start getting into terabytes of data, things start getting complicated. Um, the the yeah. cheapest thing to do is to kind of like, you know, especially if you've got a Drobo, you could, you know, get a second Drobo, copy everything over to that. You could you know, do hard drive swap with friends. You could be very patient and back. You know, the, the simplest thing to do is just use one of your, you know, basically take three months to back everything up, you know, uh, temporarily back everything off to a few hard drives so that you've got a, a copy stored at the office or your friend's house or send it to your mom or whatever in a very well-wrapped package, <laughs> preferably in static proof bags. Um, and, you know, spend the next few months quietly uploading your, you know, uploading your data to the cloud in the, in the meantime. Um, I want to say Amazon S3 maybe offers one of those deals where you can FedEx mm. your disks to the mothership and they will upload nice. locally. Um, but I remember that being prohibitively expensive for a consumer, uh, maybe not so prohibitively expensive for a business. Must invest nice. in that. Nice. Uh, I think let's see, we got one more email for Mark if you want to take that. Yeah. Mark says, <laughs> motherboard posting last week. Hi, guys. In episode 112, Tristan asked about filling all of his RAM slots and his system not posting. I can confirm that I had a very similar situation on the Gigabyte X48 slash, excuse me, dash DS4 motherboard and 8 gigs of OCZ RAM. When all four slots were filled, it would not reach post 90% of the time. That sucks, dude. If it did boot at all, it would never wake from S3 sleep. That sucks even worse. <laughs> the added fun was Gigabyte's dual BIOS. The added fun with Gigabyte's dual BIOS was that you could get into an endless reboot loop of death as it switched from BIOS to BIOS. Oh, no. Like Tristan, if only one or two slots were used, all is fine. After a lot of faffing about, I found boosting the DDR2 over voltage control in the BIOS by plus 0 0.30 volts allowed it to boot, and it's been rock-solid sleep and all ever since. Yeah, that's interesting. I um, vindicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, um, first, first of all, three-tenths of a volt is a lot. Yeah. Um, so make, I mean, just, just be aware of that. As with all overclocking stuff, you need to be a mixture a little bit careful with that. When you kind say of thing. a lot, is that like fry the memory a lot or just an unusually no. high amount of voltage? It's an unusually high amount of voltage. I might even tr like try a 10th of a volt or, right. you know, two tenths of a volt first before you just jump up to 30 or, or three tenths. Because right. I mean, you're, if you're taking uh, memory from 1.65 to 1.95 or whatever it happens to be, mm -hmm. um, that, it, it, 
it could cause other stability problems down the road, or you know, if this is memory has heat sinks on it. If you've got a properly, I mean, if you've got a properly cooled chassis, it's probably not going to be an issue for you. But I, you know, I would say over voltage to the DDR2 is is a good idea. But you don't necessarily have to start start at point three if you don't want to. If you've got high quality memory and you're fine with that, it's probably not going to be an issue. But uh, maybe try lower first, and if you continue to have the issue in a couple of weeks, it never or hurts if you continue to have the issue to ease yeah. it up. Yes, yes. Should we do the Twitter from SonicPet07 real quick? Sure, yeah. He says, I have a GTX 470. If I were to get a second card for SLI and or a third display, does it have to be another 470? Are there options? Uh, if you want to do SLI, it has to be another 470. Right. If you want just to have a third display, it can be any graphics card you want, NVIDIA or AMD as long as you're running Windows 7. If you're running Windows 7, you can have both an AMD and NVIDIA card in the same system at the same time. If you're using Vista or XP, you cannot. Or maybe XP you can. I don't know. It's been a while. Everybody should be using 7. Um, yes. So you could use anything. You could get a really inexpensive card for that third display. But if you want the option of doing SLI or three displays, you do have to have a GTX 470. Um, that is one of the crutches, I guess, of SLI versus Crossfire. So, there you go. Um, if you want to send in emails to us for future episodes, we highly encourage you to do so. The email address is twitch, T-W-I-C-H, at twit.tv. That goes to both Patrick and I, so we'll be sure to filter through those, find some, some wonderful questions to answer. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. He is at Patrick Norton, and I am at Ryan Shrout, and we will oftentimes solicit questions from that area of the Internet as well. Um, you can find me at PC Perspective, PCPer.com, hardware reviews, uh, that kind of stuff processors, notebooks. This uh, Right up now this week, we've got uh, PC Power and Cooling 760-watt power supply, the Intel 320 series SSD review, and even we took a look at the Corsair Gaming Audio HS1A headphones. Um, these are the analog plugs rather than the USB versions that we had tested in previous episodes. Um, what's going on over at Techzilla or HD Nation, which is where you can find Patrick? <laughs> With uh, Veronica Belmont and... Uh and Robert Heron, the, mm -hmm. uh, oh boy, um, we did a really good uh, hands-on on how to upgrade your hard drive and your notebook or your desktop. They kind of work the same way and, and some free software you can use to do that. Uh, we got the whole, just went up today, how to get around Comcast data cap. And we got a Pelican case in for testing, a 1510, the uh, LLC, their laptop. And I figured out how to break the notebook inside that. Hint, launching it like 15, 18 feet in the air on the concrete, perfectly safe. Sledgehammers, wow. however, you is. <laughs> I learned something about pelican cases and sledgehammers. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say it is a. I, I still have total faith in pelican cases, but uh, having an eight pound sledge beat your luggage to death is probably a highly unlikely scenario for a piece of luggage designed to be carried on the airplane with you. I agree. Just saying. <laughs> I think that's going to be it for this episode of Twitch This Week in Computer Hardware. I'm Patrick Norton. I'm Ryan Shrout. We'll see you next week on Twitch. Twitch.